This is Outcasting Overtime from Media for the Public Good, producer of Public Radio's LGBTQ youth programs. Hi, I'm Andrew, an Outcasting youth participant. On this edition, Outcaster Casper and I are going to discuss gender dysphoria and whether it should be considered a mental illness. Hi, Casper. Hi, how are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. So, I want to start off with introducing what the DSM is, because gender dysphoria is defined in the DSM. So the DSM stands for Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, and it's basically the clinical authority on anything relating to mental disorders, usually for criteria for diagnosis. So if a psychiatrist or another mental health professional wants to diagnose a mental disorder or a mental illness, the DSM is where they figure out how to do that. Yeah. So... uh In specific regards to gender dysphoria, the DSM-5 states that at least two of the following criteria for gender dysphoria must be experienced um, in adolescents or adults for a diagnosis. So from this list of about seven things, I'm just going to pick two of them out. So a strong desire to be of a gender other than one's assigned gender at birth and a strong desire to be rid of one's sexual characteristics due to incongruence with one's experienced or expressed gender. So just another definition of gender dysphoria is a conflict between a person's physical or assigned gender and the gender with which he, she, or they identify. People with gender dysphoria might be very uncomfortable with the gender they were assigned at birth. It could be their body or um, expected roles of their assigned gender. So some examples of this might be, for example, how someone sees themselves in pictures or in the mirror. Um, So they may feel that they look too feminine or too masculine. Um, It can result in being uncomfortable with one's body. So it has to do with how someone relates to their own body in terms of their primary and secondary sex characteristics and generally how they look. And it also can affect someone socially. So there can also be a form of social dysphoria, which is basically how someone relates to other people in terms of their gender and how other people perceive your gender. So this is where, for example, pronouns and names come in with trans people. Yeah, it's especially important with pronouns to make sure that um, if you're going to ask someone what their pronouns are, you should do it in a private setting because not everyone is going to be open about their gender or gender identity. And there might be situations where you'll have to use a certain set of pronouns in you know, situation outside of a, someone's house, but then inside their house with family members or people that they're close to, you might have to use um, a different set of pronouns. And so for, just for defining gender dysphoria, it's worth noting that this term is used both in clinical and colloquial settings. So even though it's sort of defined officially, it's also often used, you know, in conversation by trans people just talking about how gender dysphoria affects their life. And it means the exact same thing in both contexts. Um, But it's important to recognize that it's not just a clinical term. Originally in the DSM, gender dysphoria was gender identity disorder. And this was changed in 2013 when the DSM-5 came out, which is the most recent version. Um, And this was essentially just to get rid of the word disorder um, and get rid of sort of the stigma that came along with it and the idea that might cause trans people to be perceived as sick or something like that. For a practical standpoint, the positive uses of having gender dysphoria in the DSM, uh, it's good for insurance billing. So it can provide diagnosis to insurance companies and doctors in some cases that transition-related care is medically necessary. So if someone wants to get um, hormones or top surgery, bottom surgery, or anything that could affirm their gender identity, that would be a really good reason to have it. And this is actually a pretty standard procedure, as most trans people who have gone through any sort of medical transition are familiar with. Often in order to get hormones or especially surgery, you usually need some referral letters from medical doctors and or therapists. And that almost always involves a diagnosis of gender dysphoria. 
a lot of doctors require this as well, but it is especially important for insurance because it's important to remember that a lot of surgeries in particular that are transition-related have historically been categorized as cosmetic because, you know, the primary function is to change how your body looks. And so it's important to have that backing from a medical professional and from, you know, a widely recognized and respected clinical authority, the DSM, saying that this quote-unquote clinical procedure is actually medically necessary and therefore insurance could cover it. So if your insurance covers transition-related surgeries or, in many cases, also hormones, um, a diagnosis is often required. Even sometimes with um, surgeries and hormones, because I've had, personally in my experience, issues with it, um, deeming it medically necessary is the other term. A lot of insurance companies sometimes have issues with it being medically necessary or, um, you know, otherwise considering cosmetic because it does, you know, cost a fair amount of money. And a lot of the times you have to jump through several hoops to make things work. So uh, for me personally, I had to go through um, an appeal request through my insurance, even though it's listed in my policy that as long as I had a certain amount of requirements, which was being over the age of 18 to consent to the surgery, having a couple letters from some medical professionals and being diagnosed with gender dysphoria, they still declined uh, my initial request for the surgery. And I essentially had to, I'd say, quote unquote, prove that I was serious enough to be able to get the surgery. Mm -hmm. And so given how hard it is for a lot of trans people to get access to these procedures, it's especially important to have, you know, as many things as you can to kind of provide legitimacy to your claim that it's necessary. Um, and I have heard some arguments that gender dysphoria should be taken out of the DSM because it shouldn't be, you know, some people argue that that, you know, can, that, that constitutes considering it too much of an illness or, you know, could potentially bring too much stigma or that it's outdated. But I think a lot of the people who argue that overlook the practical use. And I think the primary purpose, especially at this point, since they've changed it from being classified as a, you know, since being labeled as a disorder, the primary purpose is really just practical. It's to help trans people get the medical care that they need and to justify that transition is legitimate medical treatment. Yeah, because a lot of people don't believe that it can be like a valid thing and it has a lot of negative stigma. I know um, some parents or, um, you know, family members, if you are a younger person that is trans and wants to start hormones or get a surgery, a lot of people fear that it's a negative thing and that you can get um, that, you know, considered hormones are steroids. So you can get like addicted to them or you'll die sooner than you should. Uh, things like that, which uh, isn't true a lot of the time. And a lot of that information is very old and outdated. And a lot of the more current information is very sparse because uh, it's hard to really research like what is connected to being trans. Some people think it could be like mentality wise, it could be hormone wise, like actual hormones you have in your body, chromosomes, things like that. So it's sad to say, but the research is very limited. So beyond the practical question of, you know, the actual uses of having gender dysphoria in the DSM, I think that also brings us to a somewhat more interesting question from a philosophical standpoint is, you know, whether it makes sense on a conceptual level to consider gender dysphoria a mental illness. And to some degree, this is just a question of language, you know, so how do you define what an illness is or what a disorder is? But this can also be important. So you want to balance between avoiding the stigma of being considered an other and of having an illness, um, or the idea that, you know, historically has been common that, you know, being trans or, you know, also being gay needs to be fixed. Um, you want to avoid all that. But at the same time, it's important to recognize sort of the legitimacy of what gender dysphoria is and how it affects people's lives. 
Yeah, especially for gender dysphoria, it's more of a self-defined thing. Treatment is defined on what the individual wants or feels that they need, not necessarily by a doctor. So, for example, some trans people choose not to transition medically or surgically at all. Every trans person wants or needs something that's best suited to them. And you don't have to transition in any capacity to be a valid trans person, meaning you don't have to look or behave in ways associated with the binary genders to be respected or accepted. Not all trans men have to go on testosterone and get a double mastectomy or phalloplasty to be considered men. Not all trans women need to go on estrogen and get a breast augmentation or vaginoplasty to be considered women. And not all gender-expansive people have to look completely androgynous, start hormones, or get top or bottom surgery to be considered gender-expansive. And a lot of this difference in the way that people treat gender dysphoria also just results in a difference in how people experience it and also the fact that more so than most mental illnesses, it's very personally defined. You know, no one really goes into a doctor's office and the doctor, you know, makes you fill out a questionnaire and then is like, surprise, you have gender dysphoria. (laughs) And you're like, really didn't know that. You know, it usually tends to be more patient driven in the sense that a patient who identifies as trans will come in, see a therapist or a psychiatrist who will then sort of back up their desire to, you know, have some sort of medical transition, which in most cases is what will warrant a diagnosis and sort of sign off on that. So it's in that way, it's definitely a little bit different from most mental illnesses. And I think that's also part of why most trans people don't necessarily consider themselves to have a mental illness just for being trans, which makes sense, you know, because there are definitely a lot of differences. And also dysphoria is not going to spring up on you like the flu. You're not just going to get it sometimes (laughs) and then it'll go away for six months until you get it again. It's something that you, for most people, you live with pretty much every day of your life. Mm -hmm. And especially um, with dysphoria, it can heavily impact you in a negative way. In some ways, having bad posture, self-inflicted physical harm, desire to be less social, etc. And transition can help curb that for a lot of people. So I know for uh, me specifically, before I got top surgery and I started hormones, I had a really bad tendency to over-slouch. I would wear very baggy clothes, and I didn't want anyone to see that I had any kind of prominent chest, so I would really, like, almost curl up into a ball, and it's given me really bad posture. I was also binding for... 12 hours a day for about three years of my life. Um, So binding pretty much is where you have this kind of like compression vest that you put over you and it um, flattens your chest to make it look more masculine. And it's something that there are safer ways to do it, but overall is not a safe practice. And it can really damage your body to the point where uh, ribs can get bruised or even broken if you bind for too long or in more unsafe ways, such as ace bandages. Um, I know for me personally, I had a binder, but it did really get to a point where my back got really messed up. And it's very hard for me to exercise even after the fact because I was constricted pretty much 12 hours every single day for seven days a week, three years going. As someone who also binds very regularly, um, and I have not yet had top surgery, although I'm, I'm working on the process, I just had a couple of consults, um, but I'm kind of still in that in that process of constantly binding. And I think that definitely speaks to just how much being trans can really affect your health, including your physical health, you know, so it just affects sort of your flexibility in your life. And I'm always trying to have to weigh my options between like how much longer (laughs) can I keep this binder on without like making my back and my shoulders really hurt for the next week you know where I know I'm not supposed to wear more than eight hours a day technically but that's just not realistic and so how am I supposed to balance that with going out and doing things that I want to do and sometimes I have to just not do something because I'm like I need to just sit at home and take my binder off it's just this like constant thing that you're having to worry about. And for that reason, I am very excited to hopefully soon 
be in the position that you are of not having to bind anymore. Yeah, a, a lot of things that people don't understand with binding and being trans, especially for trans men or masculine identifying people, you really have to reconsider kind of the most basic things. Okay, well, is this shirt going to fit me if I take my binder off? Is it going to show my binder if it's a more like transparent material or even things like exercise? Like I personally, I do karate and thankfully our uniforms are all unisex. Like every single uniform looks the same and they're very loose fitting and baggy. So I was able to be able to wear a bra and I didn't need to have my binder on, which it's very dangerous to find an exercise. So thankfully with that, I was still able to keep active and like participate in a sport that I've been doing for the past eight years. But other sports that have like tighter uniforms or or are more constricting kind of brings up an issue where it's like, okay, do I value my comfort more or do I value my enjoyment of a certain activity? And especially if you feel like you're not presenting a certain way that can make certain activities feel less enjoyable because you see like how you look on the outside to other people and they might misconstrue like how you see yourself and how they see you. The more positive effects of transition, if people choose to get surgery or be on hormones, it can help with the need to hide oneself, slouching, binding and tucking for numerous hours every day of the week. And in more social situations, it gives trans people more confidence to go out and feel more comfortable while doing so. For example, being able to go to the beach without a shirt, uh, being able to go to the gym without binding or tucking, or being able to wear clothes that fit your body and gender identity. So wearing dresses, skirts, suits, etc. From a hormones perspective, it definitely can help socially in terms of the way that people perceive you. I definitely think for me, one of the best effects of starting hormones has been my voice getting lower. And I think that definitely helps in a lot of cases with, you know, people actually perceiving you as the proper gender, but also, you know, as just being more comfortable in social situations and in speaking. It's such a basic thing. And a lot of trans people just get so used to being so uncomfortable in the most basic aspects of daily life as a result of all of these, you know, pieces of their gender dysphoria constantly flying at them. Um, yeah. And it's it's always really great to finally kind of get rid of one of those things and check that one off the list. And finally, it's not really bothering me so much anymore. Yeah, you would never consider going out in public and someone saying to you, oh, sir, and then the little rush of enjoyment you get like yes i've like i'm I'm perceived the way that i want to be perceived and you know all you are is standing in the middle of a grocery store looking for some soup or something and you're like oh sir can i help you with something like no i'm okay thanks but in your mind you're like throwing a party (laughs) we're running out of time so we'll continue the conversation next time so thanks for talking with me today casper thanks for having me and thank you for listening to outcasting overtime Outcasting Overtime is a production of Media for the Public Good, a nonprofit organization that produces public radio's LGBTQ youth programs. Our executive producer is Mark Sofis. Visit us at outcastingmedia.org to get information about outcasting, make your tax-deductible donation, watch outcasting videos, access our social media links, and listen to Outcasting and Outcasting Overtime. Thanks, and thanks for listening.